0: National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordam. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, Exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. <laughs>
1: Is democracy about to die in darkness? Does anyone know where Lloyd Austin is right now? And has Mike Johnson, uh, he's the Speaker of the House, remember? (laughs) blown it already. We'll discuss all this and more on this edition of the Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah, Noah Rothman. And live from a very snowy Des Moines, Iowa, the sage of Authenticity Woods, Jim Garrity, you are, of course, listening to a National View podcast. Our sponsors this episode are C-SPAN and ExpressVPN. More about both of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So, Jim, you have jetted out to Des Moines where a blizzard is hitting literally as... We speak here Tuesday morning. Uh, This is just a preview for the Arctic blast that's about to follow up and plunge it to zero degrees or below as caucus day approaches. And this is the state, although we haven't seen a poll in a long time, two or three weeks, where Donald Trump leads by about 30 points On the other hand, New Hampshire, Nikki Haley is nipping at Donald Trump's heels, according to some polling, and I just looked at the weather, it's going to be like highs of 49 or 50 in Manchester, New Hampshire. So defend your coverage choices, Jim. What's what's going on? What are you thinking?
2: So, no, I I am greatly regretting many of my life choices at this moment. (laughs) Um, I would be doing man-on-the-street interviews, Rich, if there were any people on the streets. There are none. It was, you know... Um, I went out, trudged out into the snow. They were trying to shovel, there's, the streets are slushy. Um, they are trying to shovel the sidewalks and all that stuff, but uh, nobody around, I had to go someplace else to get breakfast. Um, the, the, look, I, I've never been to Iowa before. I, I'm not a huge fan of Iowa and the fact that it goes first, but I figured I should go out here and uh, uh, cover one of these myself. Although actually I'm leaving before the actual caucuses, but this is, you know, there's a debate at CNN's hosting. Just DeSantis, just Haley. Um, Chris Christie did not qualify. Vivek Ramaswamy did not qualify. Trump is counterprogramming it with a town hall. It's going to be taped about two miles, three miles away. Um, so for this week, yes, the action is in Iowa. It's frozen action. It is. It is. You know, cold action. Haley and Trump had to um, uh, had to cancel some events yesterday because you just you can't get around the Iowa transportation department and. Des Moines police are telling people to stay off the roads, um, but uh, you know this is. Oh, and I should point out, give credit where it's due. Ramaswamy is continuing to do a huge schedule of events and comparing himself to George Washington <laughs> crossing <laughs> the Delaware. Course,
1: of course, in yeah. his
2: in his defense, it's a cool looking leather jacket he's wearing.
1: Yeah, and 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 it, as, as he tells it, everything he does in this race is demonstrating his his. Uh, ability when he's president to sit down across the table from President Xi. I mean, if you cancel an event in a blizzard, that shows you just don't have what it takes, Jim, to- It does. Uh,
2: I mean, I don't know why you'd meet uh, with Xi right. in a blizzard. I think you'd probably wait for better weather, but <laughs> fine. <whatever.
1: laughs> so Noah, you have made uh, a better life choice, one, one I have made myself, which is to follow this race via the polling from the warmth of our own Homes. We do have uh, Iowa. uh, Sorry, New Hampshire polling, as I as I just mentioned. So we have this University of New Hampshire CNN poll that has a what? Thirty nine Trump, thirty two Haley, twelve Christie, DeSantis five. So I mean, he's just fading away to nothing in New Hampshire. And based on the trajectory of that poll, you'd say Nikki Haley has a really good chance of winning. This is a, a classic trajectory where you're you're coming up, and the the candidate who's rising tends to win these primaries if he or she's certainly in in second place and gaining on the the first uh the person who's in first who's ticking down a little bit and then uh um we have a boston globe poll though that shows the complete opposite that has trump at 46 in new hampshire and haley at 26 with the headline in the globe saying nikki haley stalling out in new hampshire what do you make of it
0: well the polling you can kind of pick your own adventure uh, that's why the polling aggregators are so valuable because um, they kind of <clears throat> even out the noise and tell you a more comprehensive story about what you're looking at and all the polling suggests in new, new hampshire and to a lesser extent iowa though we haven't gotten a lot of data out of that state very recently suggests that um ronda is either falling behind or stagnant and nikki haley is consolidating uh, voters who are predisposed to vote against Trump, and it tells you one pretty clear story about the nature of the primary race so far, which is probably going to be the story of the general election: is that it's a referendum on Donald Trump. It's up or down, for or against, and the vehicle for that expression of opposition changes uh, from you know news cycle to news cycle. But it seems to be as we're heading into the home stretch that it's going to be Nikki Haley. And as we've said previously, you know, there needs to be a confluence of events that is extremely unlikely for any of this to matter. But in New Hampshire, it seems to be coming together. I, I, I don't think you can look at the the state of play in the Granite state and see anything other than a competitive race beginning to take shape up to and including the possibility of uh, Donald Trump losing one of those early contests, at least uh, New Hampshire, most likely. Um, and if, We don't have enough data in Iowa to suggest that there's been movement there, but I would be shocked if we get, for example, the last Des Moines Register poll, which we will in the next couple of days. And it doesn't show that the same conditions that are changing voters' hearts and minds in New Hampshire are affecting voters in Iowa to what degree is a real question. And then we start getting into, well, how much does Donald Trump have to win by in order for it to be, a, there be a narrative around him underperforming and that could change and, you know, the trajectory, da, 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 da. it's all very solipsistic, but it's, it's not impossible to see the outlines of a series of events chipping away at Donald Trump's support to the degree that it wounds him heading into Super Tuesday and South Carolina. Super Tuesday is, approximates a national primary, so it's very hard to break in, but you know, there's a there's a thing about momentum. There's a thing about mass psychology. It does affect the trajectory of these races. And if Donald Trump underperforms by some arbitrary n- number that we won't even be able to discern until it's applied retroactively in. After mm-hmm, the right. fact. <laughs> but when that if that happens, then you can see some movement later on down the line. Nikki Haley is overperforming based on her expectations. Ron DeSantis is underperforming, and Donald Trump is relatively flat,
1: yeah. so, I, I would say when we see another Iowa poll, if, if Trump is below 50, that will be, you know. So that's the thing, though.
0: He's been above 50. Yeah. For for a long time. And if he comes in, if he underperforms to the extent that he's around 40%, for example, with his two rivals in the 20s, you can see a narrative exploding in the mainstream press that, wow, you know, he, he bleeds. The man is vulnerable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I agree with that. Yeah. Below 50 in the polling would be somewhat, and I underlined, somewhat encouraging, and if on caucus night, if he finishes below forty-five, I think I think there'll they'll be a, a, the kind of narrative you're talking about. Also, it wouldn't shock me if the, in the Iowa polling, now Nikki Haley had been stagnant in in Iowa, maybe fallen, fallen back a little bit from her uh, a big bounce that she got from the debates, or relatively big bounce she got from the debates. Wouldn't shock me if she's in in second in second place. New Hampshire, <clears throat> even if she wins, uh, and I was talking to Charlie about this before we started recording. The problem is she's on the path <clears throat> to be president of, of New Hampshire, which has happened for various people, and it and it, it, it brings you really no, no future later in the race because she's winning, at least according to that CNN poll, overwhelmingly among unaffiliated voters. I mean, she's just stomping Donald Trump, and he's winning among Republicans, and this is a pattern we've seen before. John McCain in 2000 did it in New Hampshire when he shocked George W. Bush, but there's just not enough independents to have uh, enough of influence later on. Uh, in other contests to win, so you, you'd rather win New Hampshire. But if you had a choice of losing New Hampshire but being dominant among Republicans, or winning New Hampshire and being dominant among Independents, you, you'd take being dominant among Republicans. It looks like that's where, where Trump is. But having him tr- get tripped up and just lose a contest would be would be uh, uh, good news from a, a non-Trump uh, perspective, and, and more than perhaps it, it seemed we could hope for a couple weeks ago, Charlie. Uh, we had the speech last week from Joe Biden, which forecast, obviously, the case he's going to make against Donald Trump, all about January 6, all about his election denial, all about him being a, a threat to democracy. And this is this is going to be their main case against Donald Trump, and it's a case that just wouldn't exist against uh, Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. But it seems Republicans are uh, bent at least we can assume now, on, on uh, totally determined on going down uh, this course and running uh, this race. I
3: think that case made by Joe Biden will be much more effective than most Republicans believe. It was effective in 2022 when Donald Trump wasn't even on the ballot. If you assume that the country is, broadly speaking, Divided between the two parties, between ideological factions, that there is a conflict of visions at the heart of American life, and that neither side has pushed into a period of dominance as the Democrats did in the 1930s and Republicans did at least ideologically in the 80s and 90s. Then you have very little wiggle room as a candidate. And I think that the argument that Joe Biden is making is probably going to be enough to prevail. I think there are enough people, especially high propensity voters in the suburbs, people who have shown up for Republicans disproportionately every year between 1968 and about three or four years ago, who will remain appalled by Trump And I think Joe Biden is smart to focus on it. Also, because Joe Biden actually doesn't have much else that he can say. He can't point to a great set of achievements that people like. The media likes them, but the public doesn't. And he can't ask the question, are you better off than you were four years ago? Because the answer would clearly be no. So he's going to hammer this, and that is going to hurt. I have come to the view that Trump would have to lose one of the early states, perhaps both, for there to be a momentum shift. I keep seeing people say, well, if he doesn't do as well as expected, I don't think so. I think he would have to actually lose. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. First off, most people don't read too far beyond the headlines. They will just see that Donald Trump has won. To lose is shocking. To not do as well is disappointing. Second, if Donald Trump were to lose New Hampshire, to Nikki Haley, say, the first thing he's going to do, I'm fairly confident in saying, especially given the behavior he's already exhibiting in Iowa, where he's preemptively accusing Ron DeSantis of having stolen it from him, the first thing he's going to do is say she stole it. Yep. And I think that makes it easier, paradoxically, for Republicans who don't want trump to be the nominee to say look this is what he does he loses then he says that he wins and this is a huge liability and it will be a huge liability next year and he's never going to change if he wins fine he might say actually i won by 26 points instead of four there was fraud or whatever but he still won if everyone agrees on that central fact that he won the rest of it sort of sounds boring it sounds like litigating the minor details if he loses, demonstrably loses, and then does that, it makes it easier to make the case that the guy is a liability, and it makes it easier for someone like Nikki Haley to go into South Carolina saying, look, you have to decide here what the Democrats decided in South Carolina in 2020. Do you want to take the risk? Look at what he did when I won. So he has yeah. to lose. He has yeah. to lose one or both of those so if there's going an, to be any an, shift.
1: And Iowa in 2016. It, it was stolen. I believe Wisconsin was stolen. I, I I forget, but he definitely said Iowa was stolen. He's he's never lost in his own mind, legitimately I- any any political race that's in his in his life. And there's some chance. I I don't think it's likely for the reasons I was just discussing. But there's some chance he loses, and and there's a little bit of a, a jailbreak, and it exposes a a, a weakness that that wasn't uh, evident, um, you know, across the the entirety of the year.
3: I think that's the great hope. And I've been saying for a while that we will find out as we get closer whether or not his lead is a mirage. Now, I think we've learned that it's not a mirage. It could be overstated. It could be a little bit of water coming off the desert rather than a pool. But unless we see a poll out of Iowa that is shocking, he's going to be very strong going into the first two states, even if he doesn't win both of them. And it's going to take something much more dramatic for the momentum to shift and people to
1: reconsider. So, Jim, going back to Biden's speech, th- their alarm about Donald Trump is sincere. It's, it's sincere, and there are, are reasons for alarm. But what kind of drives me crazy is if they they really deep in their bones thought th- the democracy is at stake, right? And And the Constitutional Republic... That we've enjoyed for 250 years is going to collapse, you know, the day after Donald Trump gets elected, you'd be acting a lot differently. One, you wouldn't be nominating Joe Biden. And Joe Biden himself would realize that, you know, that I shouldn't be in this thing. I could fall down at any moment. You know, it's my polling's horrible. For the good of the country, I'm I'm standing down. Plus, they'd moderate on on certain Issues because whatever the issue is is not as important as saving democracy in America. Is it really more important to to let in a bunch of illegal immigrants every single day, <laughs> if, if the choice is between that and def, you know defanging Donald Trump a little bit and saving a democracy? Also, you know that he could make some rhetorical concessions that would be kind of uh, surprising and maybe open open the eyes of, of some swing voters and say, you know what, uh, I'll, I'll I'll tell you how much I believe in democracy. I don't think Donald Trump should be bounced from the ballot. That's how much I believe in democracy. But n- none of that is in the offing.
2: No. Um, the message on the importance of democracy, the danger of some, like, by flat rules, that presidential candidates should not joke about wanting to be dictators. Even if Trump says, oh, it was only a joke, and I only meant for a day, and all that stuff. No, if you if you have the powers of the executive branch, you should not be saying, Here are the circumstances in which I'd like to be a dictator. If you want to be a dictator, that is ipso facto disqualifying in my book. Um, But Biden, you know, is the exact wrong man to make this message. And certainly on an issue of arguing that Trump is the core component of white supremacy and white nationalism, and then to go to a church that is the site of a shooting in early 2015, really before Donald Trump was even a candidate, and to somehow insinuate he's at fault for something that happened that back then uh i don't think the guy who runs around saying gonna put you all back in chains and if you ain't voting for me you ain't black is really not the guy who should be running around or or, you know you can't go into a 7-eleven unless you have a slight indian accent i remember all of these i remember him referring to shylocks i remember him referring to the orient all those things where grandpa we don't use those words anymore all those moments with Joe Biden, he's the wrong guy to run around. Let me tell you how bad my opponent is and how he's a, an, a symbol of white supremacy and all that stuff. Um, because when you run around saying Trump is the embodiment of white supremacy, a bunch of Trump's white supporters, well, I guess I'm a white supremacist then. Like he says things that mean common sense to them. And yeah, as you point out, if 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 you really want to take the steam out of the Donald Trump sales, you reach a deal on immigration border reform and, and asylum reform now, right? Right. You keep telling us the war in Ukraine depends on getting this deal. Taiwan needs these missiles for defense. Israel needs these missiles for Iron Dome. You keep telling us the fate of democracy is at stake. Ah, oh, but we can't change our asylum rules. We can't do that. No, no, no. We can't. That, that would be unreasonable. Well, look, if you tell me the fate of the friggin' world is at stake, maybe you got to give a little bit of ground. Is, is that really kind of cr- so unreasonable to ask? But I know the idea is that um, the world is at stake. And the only way it can possibly be saved is by electing more Democrats.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, on the border, you know, Trump always promises to solve stuff in 24 hours, including the Ukraine war. But excuse me. But he will save. He he will change the the border instantly. It'll change instantly because he it, sends
2: was, a message to Central America. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, the, so the guy who keeps talking about building a wall and that wants to shoot you in the leg is back in charge again. Yeah. Stop so it,
1: the fl- flow will, will almost stop, and then it'll pick up again. And then the question is whether he'll be able to re-implement policies to uh, uh, to, to really discourage it. But uh, you know, the first couple months is, is going to be like turning off the spigot. Noah, exit question to you: If Joe Biden, assuming Donald Trump is a nominee, beats him in November, January 6th, and kind of associated democracy issues will play a big role in Biden's victory, plays somewhat of a role, a small role, or no role at all.
0: Doubtlessly a big role, but I just want to (laughs) accentuate some of the points that Jim made about how there are profound risks for Joe Biden in continuing to hammer this strategy. It's already yielding diminishing returns for, uh, for all the ways you say. They're not behaving in ways that convey sincerity around their message. Kicking people off the ballot suggests you know their, their attachment to democracy is skin deep. Coddling their own violent protesters dilutes the criticism of the January 6 rioters. And then you have Joe Biden out there on the stump saying... Democracy is on the ballot. Freedom is on the ballot. And what he probably means there is you know, abortion and gay marriage and porn in schools, the kind of way that Gavin Newsom defines freedom. That's not what people will hear. They will hear hyperbole. They will hear things they do not believe. And if they hear things they do not believe, then it sacrifices the efficacy of the message. John Fetterman, in his weird savant way, kind of boils things down to their essence without any guile. And he says... He hears this message and he reacts in the New York Times and says, I think 2024 is an election between good and evil. And I bet a lot of Democrats believe the exact same thing. And Mm -hmm. that is so profoundly risky to invite your partisans to look upon their political opponents as evil gives you license to say and do a lot of things that will turn off persuadable voters. There's a real risk in continuing to hammer this this democracy as in peril strategy that they seem to lean into as though it's their only weapon, and they see no downsides to it, and I sure do.
3: Charlie? I think that if Joe Biden wins in 2024 against Donald Trump, it will be because of this argument. I don't think there's any other reason that Joe Biden would win that election. And I think this because I am convinced that if Donald Trump, after 2020, had not made the fool of himself over the election results that he did and not made that speech on January 6th and not tweeted as he did and not said to Mike Pence what he did, that he would now be winning this election by five points. And I would be sitting on the editors every week saying, do you know what? I think the public's going to vote Donald Trump in again because of the border and inflation and so on and so forth. But for so many people, and Republican primary voters just can't, get this into their heads. I don't understand why, but I see it in my own life. Voters hate what happened. It's not just about the events of January 6th. It's the response to having lost. And if Biden hammers that enough, I think he will win. And I think that's why he will win. Absent that, I would think that Biden was toast.
1: I totally agree with your point. If Trump had just said, after the 2020 election, I hate this, it's wrong, it was unfair, but, you know, I'll see you in four years. <laughs> so much of this, you know, you have about a third less baggage. or, or maybe, I mean, it would have
3: helped him yeah. not just not doing what he did, but if he had said literally what you just said, which is Joe Biden will be a terrible president. You mark my words. I will see mm-hmm. you in four years. He'd have already set up the theme
1: because mm-hmm.
3: yeah. he would now be able to just point at him and say, what did I tell you?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Jim. um Rich, not only do I think that if Donald Trump wins, the primary reason will be Joe Biden. I also believe that if Joe Biden wins, the primary reason will be Donald Trump. That the only one, the only guy each one of these guys could beat is each other.
1: So on January sixth, I'll go a little lower than Noah and Charlie. <clears throat> I'll say moderate or, or somewhat because it just economy, foreign affairs. He's kind of Biden. If he's going to win, he's got at least fight Trump to a draw on those things. And and of course the problem among the many problems with the January 6th stuff is Trump could have, you know, even having done, d- done every, everything wrong that he did, he could have spent the last three years minimizing it, you know, and, and, and walking it back at least somewhat. And of course, you know, he always doubles down. And then when he, when he thinks he's succeeding in the doubling down, he double down, doubles down more. So he had on meet the press, at least Stefanik doing her, of Veep audition, I think for her purposes she did really well. But she she adopted the Trump uh, latest characterization of these January six prisoners as hostages, which is crazy. Which is crazy. I mean, some of them were overcharged and and over sentenced. And you know I'm open to the idea you, you you should look at these maybe on a case by case basis for excesses and see see if you want to rectify them when, when you're present. But the idea they're hostages. And you know, so 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 Trump is gonna help Biden you know make this case against him. But I think another factor that will dampen somewhat the impact of it is that you, we're I'm not sure how much people care at the end of the day. It's gonna be all they almost all they hear about uh from, from Joe Biden. So with that, let's hear from our first sponsor this episode, our friends at C SPAN. January, as we've just been discussing, brings the first test. For the 2024 contender seeking the White House, C-SPAN is a place for political campaign enthusiasts with unfiltered coverage surrounding the early primaries and caucuses, as well as speeches from key battleground states. Whether you're interested in your state's race or want to follow all the political events, you can get immediate access to what the candidates are saying, plus nominating results in real time with the free mobile app C-SPAN Now or watch live on the C-SPAN networks. Again, the app is C-SPAN Now, and C-SPAN is just an incredible public service. Again, if, if you're like uh, um, Noah and I and you want to stay at home rather than brave the blizzards of Des Moines, you can watch C-SPAN, see these events, see them from beginning to very, very end. Sometimes the most interesting thing is, is to watch the the end of the town hall or the speech or whatever it is when the candidate is interacting with various folks on on the, the ro- rope line or um, uh, off, off stage. And uh, when, when so much of the coverage is, is so stilted and unreliable just getting it unfiltered which is what c-span gives gives you 24/7 is just a, a great service so I cannot endorse c-span heartily enough so no we had this a uh, really it's it's hard to believe this event last week where <clears throat> Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has an elective procedure on December 22nd. In a hospital, is discharged the next day, the 23rd, and then about a week later begins to feel what we're told is severe pain and goes back to the hospital on January 1st and is admitted to the ICU, which is a a big deal, and doesn't tell anyone. And if you had said, someone asked you, Noah, do you think the Secretary of Defense could just, if you wanted to, go missing for four days? You say, no, of course not. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't pull it off. It's impossible in our day and age. But he did and he was uh, in the hospital. His deputy, who was undertaking some of his duties, had no idea he was in the hospital. Top White House officials and President Biden himself didn't have any idea he was in the, the hospital until about four days later. What do you make of it?
0: It's remarkable. I mean, there's never a good time for the Pentagon to be leaderless, but this isn't a great time right now. American service personnel are under attack. In Iraq and Syria, there have been dozens and dozens, well over 100 attacks on their positions. Somebody has approved retaliatory strikes on targets in Iraq and Syria as recently as last week, when Lloyd Austin was nowhere to be found, apparently. We can assume that's the president, but who's executing that? Congress is now obliged to find out. Congress has to devote its energies and its attention to figuring out what happened here. That's its singular oversight role. Um, Lloyd Austin's behavior has put the president in a very bad position, obviously. But the president seems more inclined to see political risk in cauterizing the wound than he does in just broadcasting general indifference. Sort of a lackadaisical, blasé, sort of devil-may-care-come-what-may attitude That has done his presidency no favors. I wrote about this this morning. It's up on the website about the extent to which, if this Lloyd Austin affair hurts Joe Biden politically at all, which it may not, but if it does, it will do so because it contributes to an impression that's almost unavoidable now that this administration is just on autopilot, just running on inertia. It seems to just simply absorb what's happening in the Middle East, allowing Iran to dictate the tempo of events. And it just sort of moves along the border crisis has metastasized to a point at which no president would you would think allow it to get this bad without doing anything much of anything about it and only this week and and recent and you know early late last year rather began to do the things that you would you would think would deter border crises like restarting deportation flights and leaning on the state of mexico to actually police its side of the rio and that has had a you know a measurable tangible effect on the crisis but It shouldn't have had to get this bad for that to happen. The same thing could be said about inflation, where the president just seems to be hands off. They took one big swing at it with this bait and switch in the form of a legislative initiative designed to to restore price stability, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, saying, communicating to voters, we can do something about this. And then it doesn't work. And then they say, we can't do anything about this. It's a bizarre, circular reasoning that the White House is presenting to voters leaving voters with the conclusion that the president is just kind of out to lunch. And if that hardens, if that crystallizes into a narrative around this presidency, and Joe Biden in particular, it's probably deadly. You know, he can bang the drum on, on democracy all he wants, and I think he should. And probably, I agree with Charlie, it'll be extremely effective. But if the president can't present himself as a plausible alternative in the Oval Office, because he just hasn't demonstrated the capacity to lead like a president should... I don't know how many narratives he can mobilize that'll paper that one over. It'll, mm-hmm. Voters will cement in their minds that we are on our own and we don't like it. And come what may, the risks with the Trump administration, there needs to be a hand on the tiller, some hand, whoever's it might be. Maybe it has to be Trump. Maybe it has to be somebody else. It doesn't matter. Somebody has to be here to control the levers of government because Joe Biden ain't doing it.
1: So Charlie, this was an elective procedure and as Jim pointed out and as jolt On Monday about this episode, that can mean a lot of things. It can mean something that's medically necessary, but not necessarily urgent. And they say, you know, you need to come in and do this anytime the next three months or whatever, or it could be something totally voluntary. I'm not saying this is what it was, you know, but, but a a cosmetic surgery, whatever it is, it seems as though Austin uh, finds it embarrassing, which is human, you know, uh, whatever it is. And, And maybe that played a part in how he handled this. So you, you, uh, you, you do this procedure, you're a little embarrassed about, or you want to be private about, and then it goes, it goes wrong, and you're in the ICU. You're not like you, you feel like an idiot, you know, and you're in the ICU, uh, which is not a great place to be, and you don't don't want to broadcast it to everyone. But he's not, you know, he's not a civilian. He's not a normal person. He's a Secretary of Defense. He is the, the second most important person in the chain of command. You know, if if there's a a, a nuclear strike coming in against the United States. He needs to be part of the decision, you know, unlocking the football and and all that to retaliate. So you can't, you, you don't want to waste time finding out where he is because uh, no one knows. Or you know, God forbid, a, a destroyer, U.S. destroyer is hitting the the Red Sea, and you ne- you need to make a, you know make the call to to authorize the commanders to you know punch back whatever it is. Again, you need to know in real time where the Secretary of Defense is. That's why there are all sorts of. Uh, procedures and rules around this and this is why you know some democrats have been fairly protective of austin but you get a bipartisan letter from the chairman and the ranking democrat on the house armed services committee saying in effect and more polite language this is crazy and we need answers i think he has to be fired
3: i think he has to be fired not because the public will clamor for it i'm less convinced that This will gain great traction than others. But I think he has to be fired to sustain and nourish our constitutional system of government, which requires him to be a subordinate of the president and thereby to report to the president at all times. Joe Biden is the president of the United States. Now, he's not a good one. He's not an active one but he is the President of the United States. It is in him whom we have vested the powers in Article 2. He is the Commander-in-Chief, and if he has someone below him, as he should, who is in charge of defense, that person cannot take a leave of absence without his permission. That is a fireable offense in any universe. The broader problem outside of the system of separation of powers is that we have in America as all free countries must a modern invention in which the military power is subordinate to the civil power. That is perhaps one of the greatest innovations in human history. It is mentioned routinely in the federalist papers. It was an obsession of the founders. And although this didn't negate that, it chips away at it when the military brass feel as if their boss can operate with his own agency and on his own time without any obligation to that civil authority. In this context, Joe Biden is the civil authority And although he is a civil figure, well, he's something of a hybrid. He had to get special dispensation, of course, to become Secretary of Defense. But although he is a hybrid, so is Lloyd Austin. But Lloyd Austin is the connection between the civil authority and the military. If Lloyd Austin is not there, he has broken that connection. He has knocked down that bridge. And to do so in such a blasé manner, If I were president of the United States, I would feel showed a a fatal lack of respect for that great innovation in our political system. And I would fire him. I think he has to go. Now, I don't think he will because this will be seen as a partisan problem. We'll get what happened with Claudine Gay on steroids. Mm -hmm. It won't just be the, the racial question, but it will be the total unwillingness of those not only within the democratic party but within the press to give republicans a scalp we already see this being reported in this manner where axios said that republicans had pounced on this well yeah it's their job to pounce but he should go and if he doesn't then it will tell us a great deal about this administration and the degree to which it feels as if it should be in control, let alone whether it is.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're so right about the importance of civilian control of the military. If you don't have that, it distorts, deranges, and potentially destroys your society. Obviously, Rome was a a great example of this, where emperors had to cater to the the military for fear that um, uh, military commanders would... uh, rise in in rebellion and try to take over themselves, which they very often did and often did with success. They had constant civil war draining the resources of Rome. And then in a more modern context, Japan, you know, the army and the, the Navy ran free of civilian control and, you know, much more spectacular ways than we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, very slight erosion of this important principle, but, you know, young army officers would just assassinate Prime ministers and ministers of government they they didn't like or thought were too soft. And they they ended up destroying literally that that country, getting it bombed into rubble. So, Jim, this this is something that at least you would think erodes to use that word again, your level of confidence in Lloyd Austin. Yet the White House is out there, total confidence. If he resigned, we wouldn't even accept his resignation. And Charlie mentioned Claudine Gay. This is This is another way it's potentially analogous is, you know, a Harvard freshman just tried to say this was minor plagiarism. You know, it's just copying verbiage, not stealing ideas. So it's okay. Would never get away with that argument that she tried to get away with. The same thing, you know, if a private first class just went missing for four days, the guy would be discharged instantly.
2: You know, Rich, we woke up Monday morning to the news that the D.C. football team had fired head coach Ron Rivera and the general manager. So the question is, why do we have more accountability for failure from the Washington commanders than we do from the Pentagon commanders? Um, that's, you know, what you're seeing, the, the spin that you see put out on this, is well, this is a demonstration of Biden's loyalty. He sticks with his people and he doesn't just abandon them after one screw up. Well, this loyalty, and for those, you know, this is only gonna be audio, so you can't necessarily see me making air quotes as I around <clears throat> loyalty. It's also unaccountability, right? In any normal presidency, they'd look at their circumstance and say, one of our big problems is that nobody, not even Democrats, have faith in the vice president. We're going to switch out to the vice president. Just imagine, you know, you know, sub in Gretchen Whitmer, sub in Amy Klobuchar. I assume they'd want a woman. Um, but, you know, or Cory Booker. Let's say they go through African-American. The, the idea is like they put in somebody new and there's at least a chance that people like this new person. Kamala Harris has been on the job for three years. Nobody has any faith in her ability to take over if God forbid something happens to Joe Biden. Um, Karine Jean-Pierre is lousy at her job. You know, I know she's lousy at her job because they have John Kirby doing half of her job
1: now.
2: <laughs> right? If she were really good at this, they would not have John Kirby coming in and handling all the foreign policy and national security. Questions. I think he's he's pretty good.
1: The problem is well, she has to read everything. To
2: Pierre, she's he's yeah. a master. You know, um, you know, we can go through the entire Biden cabinet. Buttigieg being on uh, paternity leave for two months during the supply chain crisis, you can screw up in this administration, and Joe Biden is never going to call you into his office and say, what the hell were you doing? Get your butt out of here. You failed me. And let's just say, if there's any topic that he's going to cut a lot of slack, it's for an old man not talking about his health problems with the American people, right? The last thing this White House wants to do is to get anybody saying, hey, while we're on the topic of old men who may not be playing straight with their actual health conditions, Mr. President, how are you doing? <laughs> so, um, and I just wanted to kind of the last point of this, the fact that apparently while the very busy week for the Pentagon, killing a terrorist over in, who was active in Iraq and Syria, backed by the Iranians and shooting at the Houthis, the Houthis shot their first, um, unmanned, uh, surface vehicle out in the, the Red Sea. Very busy week. And Mathis is it, uh, uh, boy, Freudian slip. Mm-hmm. Um Slim? Uh, Austin is in the ICU for four days. Nobody knows about it. We, we, we think about. It. First of all, Biden didn't talk to the American people between his whole you know, his Valley Forge speech and December twenty second. It's almost two weeks where he just didn't have any public comments, no public events, didn't take any questions. Right? Biden doesn't appear before the American public very often. Cabinet secretaries, once a week, maybe twice a week. You do not see them out very much for all this talk of them being in a fishbowl, we actually don't see them very much. And we just assume that when they're behind, that things are running smoothly behind the scenes. Well, this told us that things are not running smoothly behind the mm-hmm. scenes, that people are not in regular contact with each other. And you kind of sit there and wonder, what? You know, we, we know this president has a light schedule. Do things get run past him? What's he doing all day? We, we you know, They would have us believe, oh, he's constantly doing meetings. He's, he's a very busy man behind that. Maybe we don't get to see him. How do we know he's not just sitting in the corner of a room muttering about corn pop?
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd also think just the politics of the Austin thing, you know, you don't like to fire someone. Uh, well, you don't want to fire someone if you think it's there's not the cause. I would say that the cause is, is here, as, as Charlie uh, ex- explained. But um, the downside is you, it seems chaotic or you made a bad choice in the cabinet secretary. The upside is it shows strength. And you know, one one thing that's really hurting Biden is everyone thinks he's weak. Everyone thinks he's weak. So to to take this and say no, I'm sorry, nice guy, totally unacceptable, which shows strength, but of course he's not going to show strength. So Noah, version of the first exit question on this: if Joe Biden loses to Donald Trump, foreign affairs, these various crises around the world that you were discussing just a few minutes ago. Will be a big reason he loses, a moderate reason, small reason, not a reason at all.
0: <clears throat> well, it's tough to say, you know, in ten months. Mm-hmm. But it's a big reason now. Uh, I'm sort of a foreign policy voter for the more than more so than mostly domestic policy. Insofar as foreign policy is in the purview of the president and in a way that is unchecked by congressional power. And so you should really evaluate your presidents based on how they navigate foreign affairs because there really aren't very many checks on the exercise of presidential authority there. Then I'm always discouraged by the degree to which most voters don't care about what's happening abroad. G- generally, the rule is unless the United States is humiliated abroad or body bags are coming home, Americans can compartmentalize foreign affairs and generally give it low priority. I've seen polling recently that suggests the opposite is true, that behind the economy, well, behind the economy... Foreign affairs takes center stage, and I I have to think that has less to do with instability abroad than the way instability abroad is manifesting at home. We've seen foreign affairs, foreign conflicts create domestic political tension. Now it's unavoidable. In fact, it's it's in your face on a semi-regular basis. But the extent to which the destabilizing security environment abroad has contributed to a sense of anxiety in domestic affairs and domestic politics, yes, I think that cuts against Joe Biden. Right now, significantly. If things calm down in 10 months, maybe not. But if the election were held tomorrow, yeah, I think that'd be a top issue, maybe number two behind the economy, which is something that's kind of unheard of.
1: Sure.
3: (sighs) Well, I don't think people care about the case that I just laid out. They should, but they don't. I... I do think that if this got enough press, perhaps even if Donald Trump exploited it, it might help contribute to a general sense that no one's in charge that would hurt Biden. And one of the arguments that you hear in Biden's defense, and this was also true of Donald Trump, is that, sure, he might be old, or in Donald Trump's case, crazy. But look at the people around him who are running things and making sure that the administration is on track. Well, if the Secretary of Defense goes out for five days and the president doesn't know about it, that's a lot harder to argue. But I am skeptical that this is going to matter in the way that it should.
1: <clears throat> Jim, foreign affairs if Biden loses in November, big, moderate, small, not at all?
2: For the purposes of this question, is uh, illegal immigration on the border a foreign issue or a domestic
1: issue? Mm, good question. Domestic.
2: Okay. Um, <laughs> then I'll put moderate, but I think just it just reinforces the message that or the feeling that Biden is Mr. Magoo and has no idea what's going on in a given moment and just kind of stumbles through his day and that it's the staff that's really running things.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. So foreign affairs itself, I put, and, and I take Noah's point, we, we need to know what events are uh, 10 months from now. It's amazing, 10, 10 months, less, less than a year. Um, but I put it at the low end of moderate, but big in that it plays into the sense that things are out of control and Biden is incapable of controlling them, and the border has a big effect on that. As well, with that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Charlie. Let's hear about ExpressVPN.
3: Absolutely. have you ever browsed in incognito mode? Well, it's probably not as incognito as you think. And why would it be? Incognito mode, like the Chrome browser in which it runs, is a Google product. And Google has made its fortune by tracking your movements online. In fact, there's a $5 billion class action lawsuit against the company in California, where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense, incognito does not mean invisible. True. So how do you actually make yourself as invisible as possible online? Use ExpressVPN as I do and as everyone in the Cook household does. In Incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked and data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. That's because all you're doing is preventing the browser from storing data. You're not stopping tracking of the flows. One of the things that can be uh, stolen... Tracked, monitored is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP address to uniquely identify you and your location and your activity. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked. No one sees it except ExpressVPN, which hides it itself. Every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN customers. And that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or to harvest your data. And best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use, no matter what device you have or you're on, phone, laptop, smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito while you're on the internet and protect your privacy thereby, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com forward slash editors. And if you do, you'll get three months extra for free. That's EXPRESSVPN.com slash editors to learn more.
1: Thanks so much, Charlie. So let me stick with you, Charlie. We have the spending deal, the first major act from Speaker Mike Johnson. It sticks to the deal that Joe Biden and Kevin McCarthy. Cut on the overall level, except for the side deals, which which add add some more. But the case for this thing is like, look, you know, it's a two or three seat House Republican majority. Democrats have the Senate. Democrats have the White House. There are just limits to what you can do. And plus, you know, it could be worse. Domestic discretionary spending basically uh, will be flat year to year, which, given the kind of fiscal context in Washington, is a sort of victory. While defense spending will go up a little bit, and Democrats have been insistent in past years that, that uh, domestic discretionary and defense spending have to be kind of jo- joined together. So this separates them a little bit. The case against it is like, look, guys, we're, we're running a $2 trillion uh, deficit, and th- this this doesn't move the ball at all.
3: I do love the side deal thing. You can tell that so many lawmakers are lawyers because they do think that changing the language changes the reality, a bit, bit like saying, well... Yes, I went on a diet and it was really successful except for the side deals that I had where I ate hamburgers <laughs> and ice cream every day. And then someone said, well, aren't you putting on weight? And you say, yes, I'm putting on weight, but it's a side deal weight. It's not weight. <laughs> Does it really matter where the deal is physically? Um, hey, look, th- this has happened because there is actually no political resolution to fix our budget problem. The... Right is slightly better than the left in that the right acknowledges that there's a problem. But if you look at the shape of this deal, it reflects the consensus in Washington, D.C. across both parties. That consensus is that the main driver of our problems, entitlements, shouldn't be touched. That the defense budget is either the right size or not big enough, that the action lies in the discretionary part of the budget and nowhere else, and that anybody who insists that we need to fix this so that the numbers add up is an extremist. Now, I agree that it is a victory of sorts to prevent too much being smuggled into the discretionary part of the budget. But the discretionary part of the budget is irrelevant when you look at the size of the annual deficits that we're running, the size of the debt, and the size of the payments that we're now paying on that debt because interest rates are higher. This is not, though, as some have argued and do every time, the result of some corrupt uniparty deal-making that defies the will of the public. This is the will of the public. This is where Americans are. The Republican Party has, for the last eight or nine years, had at its head Donald Trump, who famously rejected any talk of entitlement reform. Ron DeSantis, who's been pretty good in the state of Florida at being blunt and advancing conservative ideas, has completely dropped talk of entitlement reform. He used to be a Tea Party guy who mentioned it wherever he went. Nikki Haley, to her credit, has said some true things about the federal budget and about entitlements. But you'll notice that the better that she's done in the primary, she hasn't leaned in anymore to that. That's not something she says to groups of old people showing up in New Hampshire. And the Democratic Party has lost its mind on this question and actually wants to expand entitlements, wants to increase discretionary spending, and... A lot of them are fine with the defense budget as it is if they don't want increases. So this is what we have voted for. This isn't a plot. It's not a betrayal. It's not Republicans failing to do what their constituents want. This is what Americans want. And within that context, I suppose it's actually fine because it has managed to limit the use of discretionary spending as a vehicle for all manner of increases in outlays. But it is not even close to being a responsible response to the problems that we face, which are not going to go away, which cannot be altered by supermajorities not caring about them, and which, if left unchecked as they seem certain to be, are going to be the biggest question in our politics within a few years, because math doesn't care that the Republican and Democratic parties have both noticed that budget cuts are unpopular. Math.
1: Math is so mean. So mean-spirited. <laughs> so, Jim Garrity, let's actually pivot off this a little bit and go straight to the extra question, which is well, is slightly related to, to this controversy, but is much bigger. The Republican Party is now a mega party. Yes or no?
2: Oh, yeah. I, like, I, I wish it was otherwise. I think that... Uh, the MAGA brand is not a one win that it wins nationally easily. You probably need a Hillary Clinton-style opponent. Now, maybe Joe Biden will be weak enough and bad enough to lose to Trump, um, but you know, it'll. It, it, I will grant that a certain states like Ohio and Iowa, where I am right now, are more redder than they were back in the Bush, McCain, Romney days. But it also destroys you in states with a lot of suburbanites. I think Colorado is a good example of that. I think Virginia is a Mm -hmm. good example of that. Um, Back in the 2016 Democratic Convention, I saw Chuck Schumer say, for every blue collar voter Republicans pick up by nominating Trump, we're gonna pick up two votes in the suburbs. Didn't work out that way in 2016, but it looked better by 2018 and by 2020 and by 2022. Now we'll see if 2024 is any different. Maybe Biden will run up a lousy enough number, but. Yeah, you know, the the GOP is a MAGA one, which is a formula to end up short of 270 electoral votes unless Biden's incompetence can save you. Noah. It is a MAGA party,
0: um, but we should be clear about what that means. That doesn't mean it's a populist party, which is possessed of a series of convictions around policy preferences oriented towards trade protectionism and industrial policy domestically and even a a, a more humble uh, footprint abroad. It is a MAGA party insofar as Donald Trump calls the shots. What he says, what he wants, his desiderata, define what the party's objectives are. It is not a MAGA party insofar as its leaders can assume the mantle of whatever role they occupy and then change the nature of political reality. Uh, Speaker Mike Johnson uh, is getting a lot of flack now over this deal that we've just been talking about from his members of the Republican conference, they say things off the record or on the record, but not attributable to any individual member that the conference, for example, quote, failed to get a more conservative speaker, which is what one member told the Washington examiners, Reese Gorman, and others are saying he's just not up to the challenge. Well, <laughs> what precisely did you expect? Mike Johnson's conservative credentials are sterling. What he's got to contend with is he's negotiating with a Democratic led Senate and our Democratic president backed by a majority that has all of two members right? It's 219 now is what the Republican conference in the house is. It's barely a majority. This is as split a, co- a Congress as you could possibly get. What leverage did they expect him to wield? I think they thought that he would come in. Some members thought that maybe he would come in and repudiate by virtue of his own example, all of Kevin McCarthy's works. And all he did was ratify them by demonstrating that they have the exact same amount of authority that they, they haven't been, that they have now. Then even if that's a little bit less power, political power that they could bring to bear. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of assumptions on the part of Republicans that just will to power can change and alter events. Much like lawyers think that changing a language can, can reshape our reality. They seem to think that just getting the right person with the right ideological mix in there will really shake things up. And it never does, but they never seem to revisit those assumptions every time they prove flawed and failed. So yeah, roundabout answer to your question. MAGA party, yes. Uh, as Charlie says, not, a, not immune to math,
3: though. Charlie? Well, I, I think Noah's right. I don't think it's a MAGA party. I think it's a Donald Trump-obsessed party. I think Donald Trump's personality, his bellicosity, and frankly, his sense of humor, he is funny, much as I dislike him, have a hold on the Republican primary electorate and enough of the party to exclude challenges, but in a party that really hasn't changed that much. I've never been convinced that this shift in the party that some on the right want to see and a lot on the left want to see is real. Look at what Trump did in his first term. Look at what Republican states do When given power Look at what the the center of gravity In Florida politics Or Texas politics is It's Reagan conservatism With a few innovations I sense one major shift In the political class In the Republican Universe Since about 2006 And that's on immigration I think that Donald Trump and others, have successfully brought the GOP into line with its voters on immigration. I don't think you'll get another George W. Bush-led amnesty push as we did in 2006, or Senate-led amnesty push as we did in 2013-2014. But other than that, I think a lot of polling and a lot of revealed preferences back this up. I just don't see the party having shifted into this new mode. I see the party having followed Donald Trump. And that's one reason why it's so frustrating for figures such as Ron DeSantis, who keep trying to point out that Trump's all over the place, or he's less conservative, or he has he's an apostate on certain topics, and people don't care because they like him. So no, I don't think it's a MAGA party. I don't think that the reins of that MAGA party would be transferable. I think that this is a party that remains in hock to Donald Trump. And it's much more accurate to describe it as a Trumpist party than as a a MAGA party.
1: So I agree it's a MAGA party, but I I think you got to I forget it. As Charlie was saying, I, I do think Trump is MAGA, um, and and there's just a huge loyalty to him. He sets the pace on things. He advances language and arguments that invariably are adopted by a lot of the party, and that's just obviously enormous influence. And and winning a a party's nomination for the third time. I mean, uh, since when have we seen that? <clears throat> it's been a very, very long time. And then the substance, I, I would. I would go further than Charlie. I think on, on trade and on immigration and on intervention a- abroad, there's been a, a populist shift. Doesn't mean that the populists are getting everything uh, they want. Doesn't mean that these uh, this isn't a complicated phenomenon and there are other instincts mixed in there. S- strength abroad is still uh, very important to, to most Republicans. But I, I think the way Americans tend to be impatient with the interventions abroad, but the, the way that the part, Republican Party in particular has shifted against the uh, uh, Ukraine war, I think, is a, a symptom of this. So it is a MAGA party. For the time being, you know, Trump came in and, and changed things. Eventually, someone else will come in and change things. Not necessarily for the better, but we'll we'll, we'll change things again. With that, let me do a quick plug for NR Plus digital subscription service at nationalreview.com, your way around our metered paywall, your way... If you sign up and log in to see about ninety percent fewer ads your way. If you want to, to comment on articles and blog posts and be a deeper part, a bigger part of the NR community and get invited to events and calls with our writers, editors, and other conservative figures. So it's a great deal all around. Uh, we have uh, first time deals running uh, usually at any given moment that give you a nice discount. But the most important thing is we need people to pay a little bit for our content, not a lot, but Uh, Signing up for NR Plus is a really important way to support our valuable journalism. So if you haven't already, please join tens of thousands of your fellow National Review readers as a member of NR Plus. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. So Jim, it's um, your your last chance for a long time to talk about the Jets or at (laughs) least some current Jets game on this podcast. So go for it.
2: Rich, I don't need an excuse to talk about that. So I don't need games. By the way, one last sales pitch for NR Plus, uh, because I can't go very far in the blizzard of Iowa. I will be getting together with some members of the NRs Place Facebook group this evening. There you go. Um, there you and go. apparently, I put up a picture, and one of the members is like, "Hey, I'm right around there." So, if you're a That's member so of much. NR Plus, you never know when some national review writer editor might just be in your neck of the woods and say, "Hey, let's hang out."
1: And, or maybe and not. Be, There's can no can guarantee. An, anecdotal evidence for your political punditry ne, next week after the caucus. You got the results. You on I was talking reading. to We're some our,
2: Iowans. Yes,
1: uh, our uh, wonderful but, readers. Yeah. Out.
2: yeah. So anyway, so uh, yeah. No, it was like Leo, you know, when you have an absolutely miserable season, like the Jets frequently do, and this year was particularly disappointing. Um, and it's you know last game of the season. You've long since been eliminated from the playoffs. You're checking the Tankathon site to figure out your draft position to figure out if losing is actually better for you in the long run. My My older teenager had already uh, departed the restaurant we watched the games to go uh, to go finish up homework. It's my, my younger son and I were're watching the Jets and Patriots in this miserable game. It's in the snow. It's like endless punts, sloppy, nothing fun. And then just in the last half, you know uh, quarter or so, Jets get it together. Brees Hall has this huge run. We finally get to see a touchdown. And we just, there's like, there's like two other Jets fans in the bar. And it's empty. The Redskins are playing later. Part, pardon me, Freudian slip. The commanders are playing later. And we just, you know, like we finally got something to cheer about. <laughs> and it just felt good. And I realized the last game of Bill Belichick, perhaps, in the New England Patriots organization, after this spectacular run of many Super Bowls, the last game could be a 17 to 3 loss to the Jets. And that's gonna sting it, Bill. You know that. And that just makes me happy. So that <laughs> was my lighter I item. really the lost in a
1: row to the Patriots. Part of that was like fifteen or something. it was, it was, it was seventeen to three. It was not a. Oh, it was a. Oh, the Jets. Yeah, had the Jets lost to the Patriots. Oh, I think the last one was
2: uh, playoffs in twenty ten. It was it was a long. Oh, that was the last time they beat them in New England. And yeah, it was like a fifteen. It was a ludicrous streak. So one, it was nice to break the streak. Didn't end up affecting their draft position that much. I think they're picking tenth. You should be able to find a good player at ten. But uh, no, it was just nice to have something. And I walked out of this miserable season feeling pretty good, which is not something I expected.
1: <laughs> so, Noah, you had a sledding day, I assume, with a 100 of your best friends, like all your other social events in town. I heard right? you
0: making a quip about this the other yeah, day when I, 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 when, I when I wasn't around to that respond.
1: Way. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I thought, uh, I, thought I could get away with it. Now I know you're listening.
0: <laughs> I'm always listening.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, so we had a, a little bit of uh, – Snow, a winter blast up here in the Northeast, which if Charlie doesn't know, this is uh, frozen precipitation. It occurs in the upper <laughs> atmosphere. It's an interesting phenomenon. I've never um, heard but of it. We haven't actually had snow in the Northeast in 700 days. There was no snow in the winter of 22, 23. And that's a long time to go without sledding with your kids because they, they get old pretty quick. So, yeah, we actually got out there the other day and started hopping around in our in my yard and going down these little hills. I have a lot of stumps, which make it very dangerous, mm-hmm. but it was nevertheless a lot awesome. of fun, and I enjoyed it.
1: That's cool. Snow is the best part of winter. Charlie, you won your fantasy football league. So w- winning, that's a, that's, a, that's a good thing for you. Yeah. To, Thanks, to Tennessee Titans Great fan football. Rich Lowry
3: for that <laughs> little dig. It was the only thing that I won on Sunday. Jaguars blew their 8-3 start. I was in Nashville. It's a good thing that there were so many bars close to that stadium. But I did win the family fantasy football extravaganza for the first time. At the beginning of the year, when I had all of these elaborate charts printed out for the draft, I was laughed at. But I got the last laugh. I went 12-2 and two in the regular season, and I won in the playoffs. So at least one good
1: thing came out of Sunday. Awesome. So I'm going all the way back. To Christmas, uh, I've started giving myself uh, Christmas gifts and birthday gifts, which assures that they are extremely thoughtful gifts. And I had kind of a hockey theme this Christmas. Mike Ruzioni, signed stick, check. Rod Langway, signed replica, Washington Capitals jersey, check. And most importantly and impressively, perhaps, signed Vladislav. Tretiak, picture, check, perhaps the greatest goaltender of the 20th century. Yes, he played for the USSR. So this is my first uh, communist piece of sports memorabilia. But he played a big role in the Miracle on Ice, gave up two somewhat soft goals in the first period. And his coach uh, pulled him, which uh, the coach subsequently said was, was the worst mistake of his Career And, of course, the USA went, went on to uh, uh, win that game. So I have a fond place in my heart for Tretiak. And maybe maybe next I'll, I'll get something for my birthday signed by Vladimir Mishkin, who took the place of Tretiak in that game and gave up the two other goals. With that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick?
2: So I'm going to go with our my co-panelist, Noah Rothman, The protesters don't want to be popular. Um, I've seen folks who I respect look at, we've all seen the pro-Palestinian, I really should say pro-Hamas protesters, who are blocking roads to airports, blocking bridges and tunnels and major stuff. And how these people have not gotten run over by commuters is a small, I would say a small miracle, just, just absolutely shocking to me. Also, by the way, if pro-life demonstrators did the exact same thing, do you think the cops would be so slow to actually move in and remove them? Am I crazy for thinking that if these were a less politically correct movement, uh, that the authorities would be less hesitant to move in and remove them? Um, but anyway, so I, you know, a lot of people said, boy, this is so counterproductive. What are these people thinking? And I think Noah really puts his finger at it. This is not about persuasion. This is not about winning over all of those frustrated, uh, you know, this is a demonstration of power. This is a demonstration of we can do this and the authorities are afraid of us and there will be no consequences for what we're doing because our ability to vent our spleen and show you how angry we are matters a lot more than you going to work or picking your kid up from school or picking your kid up from daycare or anything like that. Um, I can't say I'm calling for vigilante justice. I'll just say I'm really shocked that we have not seen more fist fights in the streets. Over these people, impeding or you know where people need to go, uh, and I think Noah just really you know nailed it. Has put his finger on the on the heart of the whole. thing.
1: Yeah, here, here. I mean, it's extremely dangerous. There's this video yesterday of this African American guy trying to get to Brooklyn over a bridge and needing to, pick to up get there. daughter. Yeah, For, and know. there's nothing more infuriating than traffic, and then then traffic that someone's going out of their way to, to cause <laughs> is even more infuriating. This guy gets out of the car. He's shoving these people away from his car. They they let them they let them pass, but th- this is a very bad situation. The, the authorities got uh, to. Rich, before we them, move on, can I just yeah. say
2: this? This obstruction of traffic is so egregious, even Chris Christie says it's wrong. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> well done. No, what's your pick?
2: Um,
0: National Review's newest nights and weekends editor, Luther Ray Abel. Congrats, Luther Ray Abel. Has a piece up on, uh, quote, suicides are the cost of doing business for an overstretched U.S. Navy. Uh, He did a lot of great work in this piece, identifying, uh, extrapolating from a uh, really tragic event in which a a sailor uh, took his own life, in part uh, attributable to some of the conditions that are being experienced by sailors. And um, he puts his finger on the problem and identifies uh, the ways in which the Navy in particular, but The armed forces generally uh, have been increasing the pressures on service personnel to make up for a lot of deficits that they shouldn't be experiencing, but are nevertheless imposing those pressures on our men and women in uniform in ways that uh, every American should um, be deeply disturbed by. So go check out Luther's piece. It's great.
1: Charlie.
3: I'm going to pick Noah's piece. As I said, I'm less convinced than Noah is that the public is going to notice anything other than Joe Biden's age and lethargy. But Noah asks... The Biden administration is plagued by lethargy and indifference. Does it expect voters not to notice? I think he makes a good case that it does and that voters might notice. So as a counterpoint to my cynicism, read that.
1: So my pick is from our art critic, Brian Allen. And part of NR's tradition is is caring a lot about uh, culture and the arts. And we have, you know, wonderful Movie critics and Ross Douthit and Armin White and Brian Allen picks up the baton in the area of the arts, and he wrote uh, a, a two-part two uh, review of this show about John Singer Sargent and the dresses worn by his models. I, I can't say I care a lot about these these dresses, but I do admire uh, John Singer Sargent, and very glad that Brian Allen is covering. Uh, this part of our culture for us. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U Broadcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission or account of this game without the express written permission of National U Magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thanks to C-SPAN and ExpressVPN and thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors and we'll see you next time.